I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to your angry neighborhood feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Who, hello and good morning on my end listeners. I am recording on a very gloomy Los Angeles morning and I've got to say I'm really enjoying the coziness of it all. I'm still in my jammies and I've got my cup of coffee and I couldn't imagine a better setting to be recording another episode for you all. So this week, it's kind of interesting how this topic came to be, because I feel like this person has been following me around lately. Um, a lot of podcasts that I listen to have featured episodes about her lately. I've been seeing, um, of course, now I'm getting like ads and stuff like that because I was searching this person, but also Keegan last night posted a video that she was watching of Selena on her personal Instagram. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? What, why is Selena just popping up everywhere? And maybe there's a reason that I just totally don't understand. I don't think the month of November has any sort of significance with Selena in any sort of way. But I've been a huge fan of hers since I was really young. 
I was only three years old when she died, so I don't really have any recollection of her passing or anything like that, but I was very well aware of the biopic starring Jennifer Lopez, and my two best friends, Annie, Alexis, and I would have sleepovers every like Friday or Saturday night, and we would watch two movies. We would watch A Walk to Remember, and we would watch Selena. We apparently loved a good sob fest, but we became absolutely obsessed with Selena, particularly my friend Alexis and I. We bought the album to the movie and memorized everything, and I am not a fluent Spanish speaker at all, but I did take some classes in school growing up, so it was kind of a fun way for me to be able to like make a more real-world application to the thing that I was learning in school by memorizing these songs by Selena. When I was 12, I decided to have a diva's birthday party. My house growing up had a great basement, and my mom and I built this like streamer curtain situation and did all of these cool stage decorations, and everybody who came to the party was dressed as a different like pop star or diva. This would have been 2004. Four? Yes, 2004. So everybody else, there was like a Lindsay Lohan, there was a Avril Lavigne, and oh gosh, I can't remember who some of the other people were now, but they were all like, oh, I think maybe a Hillary Duff or something, but they were all like young, recent artists, and I decided to be Selena. And, you know, my, I've talked about this before, my mom was always really cool about me dressing however I wanted to dress, and I'm sure the skating moms that dropped their kids off uh, were probably a little bit shocked at what I was wearing, but I had on like a white button-down kind of shirt, but I had tied it up right under a padded bra that I was wearing to make me look like I had boobs. So it was like a little midriff top, and then I was wearing my low-rise flared Abercrombie jeans because, like I said, this was 2004 after all. And so I was showing a whole lot of belly and dancing around and uh, gyrating and doing all the Selena moves, and my mom actually recorded the whole thing. And I have a little USB port of some home videos that my dad had given me. And sure enough, that 12-year-old diva's birthday party is one of those videos. So if I get enough of you reaching out to me asking to post a video of me lip syncing and dancing to Selena, I will do it. But I'm going to need some encouragement because it's pretty embarrassing. So there's a little bit of a backstory about my love of Selena, and I think now is a good time to start getting into her story. When Marcella Ophelia Quintanilla was pregnant for the third time, she and her husband Abraham were certain it would be another boy. I've heard these stories all the time. They're like, I know what the sex of the baby is, so I'm only going to think of names for that sex. So that's what they did. They'd only thought of boy names. They were absolutely convinced. They already had two children, Abraham III, who they called A.B., and Suzette. When Marcella met another expecting mother at the doctor's office, who had been convinced that she was having a girl, they exchanged their name ideas. Turns out both of the women were wrong, and Marcella had a baby girl, who she would name Selena, the name the other mother had chosen had she had a girl. Selena Quintanilla was born April 16, 1971, in Lake Jackson, Texas. 
And this is a really, really weird fact about the start of her life. The OBGYN present at her birth was none other than future House of Representatives member Ron Paul. He worked as an obstetrician gynecologist from the 1960s to the 1980s and worked in Lake Jackson, Texas for a time. He was asked if he remembered delivering Selena, and he was like, no, I've delivered tons of babies. I'm sure it happened, but I have no actual memory of it, which I don't blame him. I looked into a little bit of the census records of Lake Jackson, just being curious because I don't know much about this part of Texas at all. According to the 2010 census, Lake Jackson is 58% white and 28% Hispanic or Latino, with the two races being the primary demographic of the area. It's a much larger city now, but when Selena was born, the city only had about 13,000 residents, so it wasn't a very big city at all. To understand the trajectory of Selena's life, you must first understand her father and his history because he would have such a huge influence on Selena's life and her career. When Abraham Quintanilla Jr. was in high school, he and a few friends formed a band. Eventually, they would be called Los Dinos. And this wasn't just some high school band that dicked around and carried instruments around to get chicks. Abraham was really serious about his abilities and the strength of his band. He even dropped out of high school when he was a senior to pursue a music career. Abraham was the middle of six kids, and his parents worked along the Rio Grande, gleaning vegetables, cotton, and fruits. So you can probably imagine that his mother Maria was not too happy when her son dropped out of school to be a musician. Los Dinos was a trio of men singing Tejano music, citing their inspirations as the Four Aces and the Mills Brothers. Both of those groups were quartets, the Four Aces, a group of white dudes singing doo-wop tunes, and the Mills Brothers, a group of four black men, sometimes with a guitar. I went on YouTube to watch videos of some of the band's performances, and I watched the Mills Brothers perform the song Glowworm, which was one of my favorites. I also listened to some of the Dino's tracks, and they fit right in with the other musicians at the time, but they also had a flair of their own that wasn't as mainstream. They released their first single, So Hard to Tell, which became popular enough to help them obtain gigs at Saw Cops in Corpus Christi and surrounding towns. Los Dinos sang songs known to English speakers and Spanish speakers, seamlessly going from a song in English to Spanish, pleasing their quote, Tex-Mex crowd. The band performed songs from groups like The Beatles, Ray Stevens, Tommy Rowe, and The Five Americans. Their record sales soared after the release of their single, Give Me One Chance. With it being America in the 1960s, the group experienced extreme racism due to the band's members being of Mexican descent. One club owner hired them thinking they were Italian-American, but when they found out the group was Mexican, they refused to pay them. They were also turned away from motels and from venues that held predominantly white patrons. I remember this being displayed in the biopic Selena because in the beginning of the movie, it shows her father, you know, being part of the band and performing at certain clubs and really seeing the response of the white Texans and their dislike for the Mexican band and their music. Abraham was drafted into the U.S. Air Force in 1961 and was sent to Tacoma, Washington for basic training, which is where he met Marcella, a half-Mexican, half-Cherokee Indian woman who he would eventually marry. Marcella was born July 17, 1944, a fellow cancer woman. I love it. She and Abe married on June 8, 1963, when she was 19 years old and he was 24 years old. Abraham was discharged from active duty in November of 1963, just before Maria gave birth to their first child, A.B., Abraham III, on December 13th. 
The family still lived in Washington at the time, but moved to Corpus Christi shortly after A.B. was born. When Abraham returned back to Corpus Christi, he rejoined Los Dinos. On June 29, 1967, Suzette Michelle was born, another Cancerian queen. By 1969, Los Dinos' popularity had faded, so Abraham quit the band while the rest of the group went on without him. The band officially called it quits in 1974. In adulthood, Abraham had converted from Catholicism to the Jehovah's Witness faith, which was what he would raise his children to believe in. According to Noemi Gonzalez, the actress who played Suzette in the Netflix series, she learned that the Quintanilla's faith led them to be very insular, and they only really stayed with each other in the extended Quintanilla family, not easily letting other people into their orbit. They were very, very protective of each other and loving. Now, without his music, Abraham opened a family restaurant, which was called Papagayos, and began spending time nurturing his love of music by teaching his children how to play different instruments. One day, when he was practicing with A.B. and Suzette, six-year-old Selena came into the room and began to sing along. Abraham says, quote, Her timing, her pitch were perfect. I could see it from day one. And he decided to form a family band. By 1980, Selena y Los Dinos were performing at their dad's restaurant. A.B. played bass, Suzette played the drums, and Selena sang. I'm assuming the other instruments were played by a recording? In 1981, Papagayos was forced to close down due to the 1980s oil glut, and the family filed for bankruptcy and was evicted from their home. This put way more pressure on the family band as Abraham named himself manager of the band and began promoting them around town. And he would have them perform anywhere they could get it. They were performing on street corners, at weddings and quinceaneras and fairs. Abraham even pulled Selena out of school when she was in 8th grade to be able to devote more of her time to music. Selena's teacher was not happy with Abraham. She allegedly threatened to report him to the Texas Board of Education, believing the conditions that Selena had been exposed to at such a young age wasn't good for her. Abraham allegedly told the teacher to mind her business. Other teachers had noted that Selena often looked tired when she did attend class. Selena would go on to get a high school diploma at age 17, just like the rest of her former classmates, but through distance learning. And as someone who was partially and fully homeschooled at times for skating, I'm totally not against this, but I understand the teacher's concerns, and I don't really know what, like, homeschooling distance learning looked like back then, and if it was as efficient as it even was when I was 13 years old in 8th grade. I really wish I knew how Selena felt at this time, if this was something she really wanted to do, because for me, I was bullied so badly at my school, and all of my friends were at skating. Skating was my whole world, so I was like, yes, mom, like, please homeschool me like the rest of my friends so I can be at skating more and do what I really love, be with my friends, and still get an education. And that was something that I really, really wanted, and it was my choice. But I don't know if Selena necessarily wanted to be pulled out of school and away from her classmates. So I would be really curious to know what her thought process was during this time and if she even had any say in it. I also didn't have any of the pressure of being the primary breadwinner for my family or touring and performing constantly like Selena would have been. So our experiences are very different in that aspect. She even had some college education at the Pacific Western University where she majored in business administration, which I think is very smart. For touring, Abraham refurbished an old bus to whom he called Big Bertha, and the family lived there while they traveled around performing. During the first few years, the family performed to put food on the table and barely had enough money to pay for gas. 
Their first record was released in 1984, entitled Selena y los Dinos, for Freddie Records. Selena really wanted to record the kind of music she liked to listen to, and has admitted in interviews in her initial distaste for Tejano music. She pleaded with her dad to let her record English-language songs, but he put his foot down. And the decision to stick with Tejano music would be really tough, because Tejano music at the time was completely dominated by men, and no one thought that a female performer, let alone a young girl, would have the sort of star power to be able to make it in the industry. Machismo culture led to Selena being turned away from Texas music venues, not being paid enough, so on and so forth. Abraham was even told that his daughter would never make it in the male-dominated industry. Tejano as a style is saying in Spanish, but has some German influences like polka, some jazz, some country, all mixed in there. The genre was popularized by Mexican immigrants who moved to the United States. Abraham was so big on his family relating to their heritage, and I think he was also living vicariously through his kids. In order to feel validated in his success, he wanted to see his kids perform the same songs he did, extending his legacy. I have some problems with Abraham, if you can uh, pick up the tone. But there was one big problem for Selena when it came to singing Tejano music. She didn't speak Spanish. So much for focus on the culture, Abe. She learned to sing songs in Spanish phonetically with guidance from her dad. And this is how I learned Selena songs as well. (laughs) Selena was asked to appear on the Johnny Canales Show, a popular Spanish-language radio program to promote their first album in 1985. When musician Rudy Trevino, founder of the Tejano Music Awards, discovered Selena's music, he awarded her the Female Vocalist of the Year Award at their 1987 ceremony. She would go on to win this award every year for the next nine years. Between 1985 and 1988, Selena released five more LP records. In 1989, there were two major labels fighting over who would represent Selena, now a rising star. Jose Bejar of EMI Latin Records wanted her to be signed to their new label, Capitol Records, and Sony Music Latin wanted her as well. Bejar thought he had discovered the quote, new Gloria Estefan. Both EMI and Sony had their pros. Sony was offering double what EMI was offering, but Capitol Records would be brand new, and she would be one of the first artists signed to the label. So eventually, they decided that she would go with EMI slash Capitol Records. Seeing some potential for crossover, Behar and Stephen Finter asked Selena to record three English-language songs for the heads of EMI's pop division, but they weren't won over as they didn't think a Mexican-American woman would have crossover potential, and the project was denied. They'd feel real stupid later. On October 17, 1989, Selena released her self-titled debut album. AB became Selena's main record producer and songwriter for most of her career. I love how close their family is and like how specifically the siblings like really work together and seem to support each other and love each other so much as an only child that's something that I've always really envied about people that I see with siblings it's just this like inherent protectiveness and love for each other and I know that doesn't happen with all siblings but it really is a beautiful example in this family from what I've been able to see in interviews and of course from seeing the biopic which I know is probably really fictitious but just from all the reading I've done they were like best friends and they were all so stupidly talented that I think it's pretty amazing that they were able to stay so close and encourage each other creatively in such an amazing way. 
Her debut album reached number seven on the U.S. Billboard Regional Mexican Albums chart and performed better than any other female Tejano singers. That same year, Selena was approached by Coca-Cola to be one of their spokespeople in Texas. It was also during this time that she debuted a new look to go with her debut album. Offstage in interviews and hanging out, you'll see Selena in big flannels and jeans, very late 80s, early 90s style. But on stage, she embraced a more feminine side to herself, quote unquote. And she really also embraced her sexuality by wearing these, she would wear like bedazzled bra tops and boussiers, which of course her dad was not happy about at all but her costumes were beautiful and I love it's almost this like Hannah Montana Miley Cyrus situation like you get on stage you have this other person personality and that's your performance self and then when she's off stage she can just be Selena you know and I think that that's really beautiful and I personally was obsessed with her costumes because they reminded me so much of like bedazzled skating costumes when I was growing up. But getting back to Abraham's disapproval of these costumes, he wanted his family to maintain a, quote, clean, family-oriented persona, and his youngest daughter dancing around in a bra on stage was not on the top of his list. He would often walk out of sessions if he didn't like what Selena was wearing, but later he learned to just accept it after Selena explained to him that it was just fashion. Come on, you're a musician. You have to know about playing a part sometimes, Abraham. Get with it. Selena and her mother would often be the ones putting the outfits together themselves, which I love because that means they're one of a kind. In my research, I saw a quote by this guy, Charles Tatum, who's quoted saying about that time that Selena drew most attention from her, quote, beauty, sexuality, and youthful impact on the Tejano music scene. And this seems icky to me, especially because she was so young at the time. But I also think that this was so of the era because this is around the same time as Madonna, Paula Abdul, all of these other stars that dressed the same way. And in order for her to really like make her place in that same kind of title in the music industry, she embraced that part of herself as well. And there's nothing wrong with a young woman, you know, embracing her sexuality and her body and things like that. I just find it icky when men comment on it in general, so... Betty Cortina of People Magazine has said that her provocative clothing was an acceptable emulation of Janet Jackson and Madonna and that she wore, quote, sexy outfits that accentuated a body of a Latina woman. It was actually because of her choice of onstage attire that she became an inactive member of the Jehovah's Witness faith. But it seems like her family would continue to follow the faith for the most part. She is credited as the first woman to change public perceptions of feminine beauty in the Tejano market, which I can definitely see. Let's take it back a little bit. Guitarist Chris Perez had joined the band several months earlier and was nursing a quiet crush on Selena, even though he had a girlfriend in San Antonio. Chris. But really, who could blame him for falling in love with Selena? Selena was funny in a self-deprecating way. She was obviously gorgeous and incredibly talented. She was the biggest catch. Selena was into Chris as well, and the two finally talked about their feelings for one another at a pizza hut one night and became a couple. So romantic. Fearing Abraham wouldn't approve of the relationship, they decided to keep it quiet. It was allegedly Selena's sister, Suzette, that tattled on the couple to Abraham. I mean, it couldn't be easy to hide, as they all pretty much lived together in small spaces all the time. And when Abraham found out, he threw Chris off the bus and told him his relationship with his daughter was over. 
He then fired Chris from the band. But of course, Selena and Chris would still sneak away to see each other because you can't fight young love. The reasons that Abraham wasn't a big fan of Chris was that he thought he was a crook for his juvenile run-ins with the law and his bad boy image. Now, I didn't do any research to see what his juvenile run-ins were, but I have a strong feeling it was probably not a big deal. But he, like, he was hot. Like, he definitely had a bad boy vibe going for him. He had, like, long hair, leather jackets, blue jeans. Like, he was hot as fuck and definitely looked like he could get your daughter into trouble. But Abraham also was just like the most overly protective, perfectionistic person. So so I can imagine that seeing his daughter with someone like Chris was uh, not his favorite thing in the world. According to Chris, Abraham once even called him a, quote, cancer to his family. Years later, Chris said, I think the main reason for that was it kind of hurt his pride and his ego to find out that he was the last to know. It hurt me that he was saying it, but I didn't let it get to me because I knew deep down he knew the kind of person I was. Chris and Selena definitely connected over music. Chris was born in San Antonio on August 14th, 1969, and much like Selena, showed a very clear talent for music at a very young age. Selena's second studio album, Ven Conmigo, became a huge success both in America and in Mexico. It was then that she was named the Queen of Tejano Music in 1990. We're going to take a quick commercial break here, and when we come back, Selena meets Yolanda Saldivar. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. All right, I am back. I actually did take a break in there. I went and had a little bit of breakfast, and now I'm back. So hopefully I have enough toast pieces out of my teeth, and that won't bother me as I continue recording. So now we are getting into the part of the story where Selena would meet the woman that would eventually end her life. 
1991, 30-year-old Yolanda Saldivar went with a friend to a Selena concert. She was a country music fan. She wasn't really interested in going to the concert, but her friend insisted and dragged her along. And by the end of the show, Yolanda was a hardcore fan. And she went out and looked around and wanted to buy a t-shirt or something to commemorate her time at the concert. And she realized that there wasn't any merch available. And this part I feel like would never happen today, but but she somehow got a hold of Abraham and got his phone number and started calling him repeatedly. I'm guessing that maybe back then his number was in the yellow pages, but I, I don't know. Did they have like celebrities numbers in the yellow pages? I feel like that's really unsafe. Anyway, she contacted him and was like, look, your family seems really busy. Selena is so successful. I really think that a fan club would be a great idea. People could pay to join this fan club. And then in return, you know, you would send t-shirts, signed autographs. They would be the first to know about upcoming tour dates and all of that. Eventually, Abraham was convinced that this would be a good idea and said, yeah, go ahead. You can start this fan club. Whatever. He probably saw this as a huge promotional tool, which would further his daughter's fame as well. And I truly think that that is all Abraham really cared about in the long run. What Abraham didn't know is that Yolanda had been a nurse, but had had her license revoked for stealing money from the businesses she worked for. So trusting her with the money in the fan club is not a good idea. When Yolanda successfully recruited 1,500 members in four years, she was given more and more responsibility from the family. She also became really close with all of them, which was a super big deal because if you remember what I mentioned earlier in the episode, their family was super, super insular. They didn't let a lot of other people in and get close to them. So for Yolanda to be as close as she was to Selena and the rest of the family and really gain their trust really says something about how she was able to manipulate her way into all of this. And that will become more and more clear as the story goes on. But it really does say something that she was able to gain the whole family's trust like she did. After secretly dating and sneaking around for quite some time, on April 2nd, 1992, Selena and Chris Perez eloped. Selena thought that if they married, her dad would have to accept their relationship, which I feel like I see in movies all the time, and I don't know why people think marriage is a solution to anything. But uh, within hours of getting married, the media announced the nuptials, and they were like, fuck, we're screwed. Abraham was fucking livid, and he even alienated himself from Selena for some time, which is so fucking childish. Like, I just, I'm sorry. I really don't like this man. I I have sympathy for him for losing his daughter, someone that he loved so, so much. But my God, like, he's such a fucking asshole. It drives me insane. Like, stop controlling your goddamn daughter and everything that she does, please. He's claimed in years since in interviews that he thought Chris was like a male chauvinist who would make Selena quit her music career and be a wife and mother. But I just don't think that there was anything to support that. You know, I think that that's an excuse that he's saying later in life to make himself look better, especially because he really hasn't been portrayed very well in any of the tellings of these stories. But sorry, facts are facts. After they got married, Selena and Chris moved into an apartment together in Corpus Christi. Eventually, Abraham came around and apologized to Chris, accepting him back into the band. 
A month into their marriage, Selena released her third album, Entre a Mi Mundo, which peaked at number one on the U.S. Billboard Mexican album charts for eight months straight. Holy shit. That's a long time. The record became the first Tejano record by a female artist to sell over 300,000 copies. Yes! Since much of Selena's popularity was in Mexico, she began to do more performances and press there instead of the United States. But as a whole, Mexican people looked down on the sort of Tex-Mex person, as they were kind of teasingly called at times. Texas Mexicans were not seen as being authentically Mexican enough. And Selena could have been a great example of them to that, as she wasn't at all all fluent in Spanish and did kind of represent a lot of the things that they didn't like about the Tex-Mex culture. Her record executives were apparently terrified of sending her to do press in Mexico. She would often flub up her Spanish or sneak in a few words in English, but instead of this angering her Mexican fans, it actually endeared her to them. She seemed just so honest and authentic and her smile was just so infectious. She would acknowledge her fuck-ups by laughing at herself and then she would correct herself and move on. There's a really cute clip where, and oh god, I wish I would have written it down because I can't remember what she was saying, but she was in a talk show and she said, oh, it was like, um, instead of saying catorce, uh, she said dece uh, cuatro. And it became this like huge moment in TV and like the the host and Selena were like hugging and like falling into each other laughing and Selena just made fun of herself. She was like, oh my God, no, I know, I know that word. I swear, I swear. And then there was another interview. I watched this great clip. I'm going to post it um, on YouTube where it was like Selena's best funny slash diva moments or whatever. And then an interview later on mentions this whole thing and she was like, oh my God, no. And she's like shoving him. She's like, don't talk about that don't talk about that I was so nervous I was so nervous oh my gosh oh my gosh and like she's just so sweet so no one can be mad at her like come on she's acknowledging the fact that she's trying and she does pretty well so instead of it going horribly like everybody was so concerned about she actually just increased her popularity that much more in 1993 Selena recorded Como La Flor which would become one of her most iconic songs and I mean absolutely iconic pause the episode go listen to it come back I would play it if it were not for copyright issues Como La Flor skyrocketed her further in the charts and was nominated for song of the year at the 1993 Tejano Music Awards the following year her album Live which came out in 1994 also received critical acclaim winning a motherfucking Grammy for best Mexican American album at the 36th Grammy Awards. Hell yes, queen. By this time, Selena's style had become just as infamous as her voice. Now that she was becoming more and more recognizable, she decided to open a few boutiques called Selena Etc., which would be in Corpus Christi and San Antonio to start with. The shops would carry clothing from her own line and other Selena-inspired beauty products. Since Yolanda had done such a great job with the fan club, she was asked to be the manager of the Selena Etc. stores. And Yolanda was trusted with a lot of money because these boutiques did really well. They reportedly earned over $5 million, making Selena among the 20 wealthiest Hispanic musicians who grossed income in 1993 and 1994. She released the album Amor Prohibido, which contained the infamous song Bitty Bitty Bum Bum, an absolute bop. Again, pause the show, listen to the song, come back, screw you copywriting. 
The album's success came with another Grammy nomination in 1995 and won Record of the Year at the 1995 Tejano Music Awards. Around this time, Selena hired Yolanda to be her registered agent in San Antonio, so Yolanda moved to Corpus Christi to be closer to Selena. But a storm was brewing. In December 1994, the boutiques began to suffer after much of the staff had either quit or Yolanda had fired them. Selena was being told that Yolanda was mean and manipulative, but since Selena had never seen any of this behavior for herself, she didn't give much credence to the accusations. Later, the staff would go to Abraham instead of Selena with their complaints, as she would never believe them. While all that was going on, in late 1994, EMI had decided that Selena had reached all of her goals in the Spanish-speaking market and wanted her to expand into singing songs in English. Finally, they thought she had what it takes. She then began preparing for her first crossover album. In 1995, she even appeared in the movie Don Juan de Marco, which starred Marlon Brando, Johnny Depp, and Faye Dunaway. It was a really small role. I watched the scene. She played a singer in a Mexican restaurant accompanied by a mariachi band, but she looks and sounds gorgeous. She nails it, obviously. Selena's designer Martin Gomez and her cousin Deborah Ramirez, who were both working for the fashion line and the boutiques, started explaining their concerns about Yolanda's behavior and management skills to Selena. Those around her were seeing that Yolanda's devotion to Selena seemed more like an obsession, and they saw how two-faced she was with the way that she would act when Selena was around compared to the way that she would act when she wasn't around. Abraham began receiving calls from disgruntled fans in January of 1995, explaining that they hadn't received anything they were promised in return for joining the fan club. Abraham began to investigate and discovered that Yolanda had embezzled more than $30,000 in forged checks from both the fan club and the boutiques. Abraham, Selena, and Suzette held a meeting with Yolanda on March 9, 1995 to confront her about their findings. Yolanda swore she was innocent, which led Abraham to threaten her, saying that if she couldn't produce the documents to prove her innocence, he would call the police on her. He also demanded that she cut off all contact with his daughter. However, Selena really didn't feel the same way as her dad. She believed that Yolanda was essential to much of the success of her clothing line in Mexico, which Yolanda was now heading, and she wanted to give Yolanda the benefit of the doubt and let her procure the documents that would show that she was innocent. On March 31st, 1995, Selena went to visit Yolanda to grab bank records and tax documents she needed. When Selena arrived, Yolanda told her a sob story of being sexually assaulted in Mexico, leading to Selena feeling sympathy for her. Selena took her friend to the hospital for an exam during which Selena allegedly began to expect that Yolanda was lying to her about the assault. There would be interviews with the nurses who examined Yolanda later who would say that it didn't appear that she showed the signs of a sexual assault and wasn't very inclined to go through with full examinations and things like that. I am not one to say that it did or did not happen, but I think that there is a very strong chance that Yolanda used this as a way to gain sympathy from Selena and buy her some time. Later on that day, she met up with Yolanda again at the Days Inn in Corpus Christi, where she again demanded getting the files she needed. At 11.48 a.m., the argument got to a point where Yolanda grabbed a gun from her purse and pointed it at Selena. As Selena attempted to flee, Yolanda shot her once on the right lower shoulder, severing her subclavian artery, which caused severe blood loss. 
Though she was critically wounded and profusely bleeding, she ran toward the lobby, leaving a 392-foot-long trail of blood in her wake. When she made it to the lobby, she collapsed on the floor, with Yolanda allegedly still stalking behind her, calling her a bitch. The hotel clerk called 911, and Yolanda escaped to her pickup truck. Before Selena lost consciousness, the last words she would ever utter were Yolanda's name and her room number. How badass and sad at the same time is that? Selena was taken to the hospital at 12 p.m., but there was no evidence of neurological function, as she had no vital signs. She was declared critically brain dead. But the doctors didn't give up. Probably because of her prominence, doctors worked extra hard to revive her. At one point, they were able to establish an erratic heartbeat for long enough to transfer her to a trauma room, and they had begun blood transfusions in an attempt to re-establish blood circulation. After her heart stopped beating, a doctor began massaging it, hoping to bring the beats back. After 50 minutes of surgery, she was pronounced dead from blood loss and cardiac arrest at 1.05 p.m. Due to the overwhelming media response and the demands for answers, an autopsy was done that same day, which found that the bullet had entered Selena's upper back near her shoulder blade, passed through her chest cavity, severing the right subclavian artery, and exiting through her upper chest. Her funeral was held the next day on April 1st, 1995 in Corpus Christi. The vigil drew 3,000 fans from all over the country and Mexico. The public viewing of her casket was the following day, with fans lining up for almost a mile to pay their respects to their idol. I read that there were these terrible rumors going around that they were having a closed casket because there wasn't actually a body inside of it. So at the last minute, the Quintanillas made the decision to have an open casket, which, oh my god, I can't, I can't even imagine. That day, about 40,000 people passed her casket and more than 78,000 signed a book of condolence. She was buried on April 3rd, which was attended by 600 family and friends. The impact of her death was immense. Like, it was comparable to the murder of John Lennon, the death of Elvis Presley, and like even the assassination of JFK. Major television networks interrupted their programming to break the news. Her death was also front page news in the New York Times for two days. All right, so now while all of that was unbelievably beautiful and touching, I'm about to get into something that is just downright fucking upsetting. Shortly after her death, the fucking asshole Howard Stern mocked Selena's death and burial, made fun of the mourners, and made fun of her music. And frankly, his comments were racist as fuck. He said on his show, this music does absolutely nothing for me. Alvin and the Chipmunks have more soul. Spanish people have the worst taste in music. They have no depth. Can you fucking believe it? Like, he said those words. He said those words out loud on a radio show. And, like, he's still successful. He still does stuff. And, like, people don't know about this. This, oh, I am seething. I am absolutely seething. Okay. There was another thing that he did that is so fucking upsetting, it's almost hard for me to say it, but I need you all to be as angry as I am, so here it goes. He also played some of Selena's songs with gunshots in the background. How fucking evil and heartless do you have to be? That is so fucking disgusting and terrible. Fuck you, Howard Stern. Canceled. Done. No more. Obviously, his comments absolutely infuriated the Hispanic community, and a disorderly conduct arrest warrant was issued in his name. Stern then made a comment in Spanish, 
saying his comments were not made to cause, quote, more anguish to her family, friends, or those who loved her. Well, I'm sorry, but they fucking, what did you think was going to happen? You played her songs with gunshots underneath them. You were trying to say that Hispanic people don't have depth. You were saying her music was stupid. You were making fun of her friends and family and the people that were mourning her and so, so sad. You didn't mean to cause them anguish? Then what was your fucking intention in the words that you were saying if not to hurt somebody? It's not fucking funny. The League of the United The League of United Latin American Citizens boycotted his show. Texas retailers stopped carrying his products, and Sears and McDonald's even sent a letter stating their disapproval of Stern's comments to the media because some believed that the companies sponsored Stern's show. Howard Stern was never formally charged. All right, I'm going to turn down the rage a little bit because, whew, that's over. All right. Well, I very much dislike this person, but he did a pretty good thing here on April 12th, 1995, two weeks after Selena's death. The governor of Texas at the time, George W. Bush, declared her birthday, April 16th, Selena Day in the state. He said Selena represented the, quote, the essence of South Texas culture. In October 1995, a jury convicted Yolanda Saldivar of first-degree murder, and she was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 2025. Yikes, I don't think it's going to go well for her. Unfortunately, Selena was never able to finish her Spanish-English crossover album, but her family still made it happen by piecing together things that she had already recorded. When the album Dreaming of You was released on July 18, 1995, it became a major success, selling 175,000 copies on the day it came out in the United States. In the first week, it sold 331,000 copies, becoming the third female artist to sell over 300 copies in a week, right after Janet Jackson and Mariah Carey. It debuted number one on Billboard 200 chart, becoming the first album by a Hispanic artist to do so. Also, Dreaming of You was the first album to debut posthumously at number one by a solo artist. As of 2015, Dreaming of You has sold 5 million copies worldwide. While the thing that should have cemented Selena's legacy in this world should have been having a long and prosperous career in life and for us to be able to see her growth and her new level of stardom that she was clearly heading toward, But instead, the thing that's kind of cemented her in our history books has been her death. But there were also some silver linings, I guess. Because of her popularity, and I mean immense spike in popularity after she passed, all the things she accomplished in her career opened the door for other musicians to follow in her footsteps, like Jennifer Lopez, who would go on to play her in the biopic. Artists like Ricky Martin and Shakira also rose to stardom shortly after her death, which I don't think was a coincidence. In 1995, the name Selena was ranked as one of the top 100 most popular names for newborn girls. Selena Gomez, born in 1992, was named after Selena Quintanilla, which makes sense since she is from Texas and was probably well aware of her music before the rest of us were. In December of 1999, Selena was named the top Latin artist of the 90s and best-selling Latin artist of the decade. When the idea for a biopic came about, they had initially approached Selma Hayek. The movie began production within the year that Selena passed, and Salma felt it was too soon to make a movie about her and turned down the role. Eventually, more than 21,000 people auditioned for the role of Selena, becoming the second largest audition since the search for Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind in 1939. 
Selena is remembered as a trailblazer on the cusp of absolute superstardom. She has been credited as redefining Latin music and its subgenres of Tejano, Cumbia, and Latin pop. She is considered one of the most significant Mexican-American singers of the end of the 20th century, and she still reigns as the queen of Tejano music and has been described as, quote, the most important and popular Tejano star of all time. I bet the chauvinistic assholes who wouldn't book her as a kid feel pretty fucking stupid. Selena has also been credited with elevating the Tejano genre into the mainstream market, which I can attest to. Her music, the movie, did more than entertain me, though. It educated me. I took Spanish in school, like I said, but this really did help me with real-world usage of what I was learning on paper. I'm really, really good at memorizing, and I love memorizing things that are kind of difficult or complicated really fast. That's why I'm obsessed with everything in Hamilton, (laughs) so on and so forth. And so this music really was fun for me to learn, and... My family loved to go on vacations to Mexico when I was growing up because we had to get out of the cold. And I loved that I would hear certain phrases and things like that that I learned from Selena songs. And then I was able to use that when we would like, say, order something at a restaurant, so on and so forth, or just make casual conversation. And it made me feel really cool that I was able to do that. So now that all that's done, let me know if you really need to see me at 12 dancing around to Selena. (laughs) oh thank you so much everybody for listening to another episode and thank you to everybody who's been keeping in such great contact with me thank you to everyone who has been reaching out about a potential spot as a co-host or sidekick on the show i really really appreciate it and i also want to thank you for your patience while i schedule everything and get everything done but we are in the process of all of this my life as you are probably well aware by now is just in so much transition I'm really doing my best to give you all of the content in a timely manner with the best quality possible, and I'm really working to get back to kind of the old way of this show, hopefully sometime within the next few months. I really appreciate all of your patience, your love, your kindness, your understanding, your support, all the good things. You've also been sending some really, really wonderful episode topic suggestions. So if there's any more of those out there, please go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. I normally don't add this, but I might start doing this more. If you want to see what I'm doing in my day-to-day life, go ahead and follow me on my personal Instagram. It is just she's Madigan, all one word. The show has a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. Also, I would love, love, love some more reviews. So if you haven't done so already, please go over to that Apple Podcast app and rate and review the show. Or you can go over to Spotify and rate it over there. All right, that is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye-bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.